Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi ramen and zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Tim Sullivan, who is definitely one of the best sake specialists in the U.S. and the brand ambassador for Hakkai-san Sake Brewery in Niigata Prefecture. And Tim also came to the show on episode 32 and talked about his interesting path to get into the world of sake. And Tim just came back from... Uh, to New York from a year-long apprenticeship at Hakkai-san Sake Brewery. So today we'll discuss what Tim did, learned, and enjoyed, and suffered during his unique experience as an American sake apprentice at the traditional Japanese sake brewery. But before we start, today is the 100th episode of Japanese. Yay! So listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening and uh, for your uh, kind support. So I've been learning so much from this program uh, myself, and uh, I'll keep working hard to make a fun show. So uh, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. And also, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher as a podcast. So if you haven't, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Eats. Now let's start our conversation with Tim Stephen. Hello, Tim. Welcome back. Thank you for having me, and congratulations on 100 episodes. Thank you. I'm so honored to have you on 100. Oh, it's my honor to be here. <laughs> so, uh, so how are you? Are you? How are you adjusting yourself? Yeah, I've been back from Japan for about three weeks, oh, wow. and I feel like I'm getting back into the groove, so mm. things are going well. Okay. So do you think your behavior changed or something? Mm, remains to be seen. We'll okay. see. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so for listeners who have not listened to episode 32, uh, so tell us your background and how did you get into sake? Well, um, I used to work in corporate America, and about uh, 12 years ago, I had premium sake for the first time. Uh, that sake was uh, Hakkai-san Junmai Ginjo. Mm. I had it at a New York City sushi restaurant. And uh, I really fell in love with sake right then and there. Mm. Uh, the first thing I did because of my computer background is I started blogging about sake. So in 2005, I started urbansake.com, mm. which is an English language sake education website and blog. And I've grown that over the years, and I'm still running that website now. Mm, this is still my go-to website. Oh, thank you so much. It's really rich contents. Well, after, after I started 
blogging about sake as a hobby, about five years later, I left my corporate job and began working full-time in the sake industry. Mm. That was about seven years ago now. Wow. You never know. The glass of sake changed your whole life. It's so true. It really happened to me. Mm. But it didn't happen when you had <laughs> other, like, you know, nice beverage, Japanese whiskey or good wine. It didn't happen, right? No. What really caught my attention was that it was something really unusual and new for me. Mm-hmm. And it was the pairing of the sushi and the sake together uh. that really grabbed my attention. It was so They complemented each other so much mm. that it really... Grabbed my attention and I wanted to learn more. So that started me on my way. Uh, so one plus one is beyond yes. two. Uh, okay. And uh, so um, you worked as a sake ambassador, Hakai-san, right? So, you know, the, the beginning was a glass of Hakai-san yes. and sake, but how did you get involved in Hakai-san? Well, that was my start, and I was really interested in that brewery and that brand because I kind of uh, started with their sake. That got me interested in the whole genre of sake. Um, I met the uh, salesperson uh, here in New York, mm-hmm. and about 2008, she invited me to visit the brewery. Mm-hmm. So I had my first trip to Hakai san in 2008,、mm-hmm. and I had a tour of the brewery, and I had lunch with the president, and just getting to know you.、Right. And then a few years later, they invited me to write some tasting notes for them, a little job here, a little blogging、mm-hmm. there. In English. In English, exactly. And then、um, I did a few events for them, speaking engagements for them. And then in 2013, they invited me to be their brand ambassador.、Mm, so the first invitation to the sake brewery, I think it's based on your urbansake. Yes, that's、blog. exactly right.、Yeah. Right, because it's not, it didn't happen overnight. It's such a、right. great, detailed, accurate writing on the blog. So、oh, thank you. that was rewarding. Yes. Right. Okay, and、uh, well, I think whoever has been to Japanese restaurants here, in, especially New York City, or I don't know what's the, you know, the area is, but Hakai san sake is very common to find at very premium restaurants too. Yeah, I'm lucky it's a well known brand and it's a very delicious sake, so it's very easy to introduce and to、mm-hmm. sell and to、um, uh, really. Give people their first taste of sake with something very clean and crisp like Hakai san. It's a really wonderful way to introduce people to sake.、Mm, right. So if you don't know, you can just pick Hakai san and then you're okay. <laughs> that's, that's the feeling I have. Right. So,、uh, so tell us more about Hakai san.、Uh, so, what is the history and、uh, what kind of sake do they make? Well, Hakai san is a relatively young brewery. They were founded in 1922. And the current president is only the third generation.、Mm. Other breweries are 500 years old or 600 years old. And uh, uh, Hakai san is very, very young compared to other sake breweries.、Uh, but right now, they're the 17th largest brewery by volume of production、mm. in Japan. So it's, it's a large brewery.、Uh, however, they focus on small scale production. So they、mm. only do small tank production, everything stirred by hand. And,、uh, Um, their focus is making sake that is food friendly.、Mm. So it tends to be dry, crisp, and clean,、okay. uh, very, very balanced, and a very, very refreshing, crisp aftertaste is kind of their signature.、Mm. That really hits your first glass of sake,、yes. the food pairings. <laughs>、right. So, probably just because it's younger sake brewery, they are more, you know, abroad oriented, you know, foreign market oriented. Yes, I think that. Breweries that have a long history, it can be a curse and a blessing. The long history is, is wonderful, but sometimes they get、uh, 
focused on one type of sake production that they've always made for、mm. hundreds of years.、Right. But a younger brewery that doesn't have that history maybe has a little bit more freedom to try different styles or break out into a new direction.、Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, both sides of the coin are good, but、uh, that's where Hakai san is right now. I think we're trying a lot of new things and、right. reaching in new directions.、Mm. Uh, obviously, having an American apprenticeship, that's very. It's quite unusual. <laughs>、right. It's not common at all.、Yeah. Right. I think I, I know Dasai does it. And one other brewery.、Uh, Nambu Bijin as Nambu well. Bijin, right,、yeah. right, Ben Bell. Yeah. Right. So there's only three, <laughs> probably, three breweries. There's, there's other breweries that have non Japanese working at them. Oh,、um, yeah, right, yeah. right. Like、um, a British and very exactly. exceptional,、um, I think, sake brewers, Toji.、Yeah. But it's really, it's really a minority that、mm. invite non Japanese to work or train at their brewery. So it's、mm. quite, quite an unusual experience still.、Mm. Right. So, see what's going to happen in five, ten years because we'll you're creating we'll the way. <laughs> right. Okay. And、uh, so, what is a sake making philosophy? Before I get into you know, your experience, what is a sake making philosophy of Hakkai san? Well, they focus on a few things. One, as I mentioned before, is they want to make sake that's very food friendly, very accessible,、mm. very easy to enjoy.、Mm. And the other thing I learned being a brewer is that. When they make sake, they put a strong emphasis on using all of their senses. So, their sense of smell, their sense of touch,、um, their sense of listening when the, when the maromi or the mash is bubbling away. So, I was trained to use my entire body, all my senses, when、mm. making sake.、Wow. You really have to be very, very sensitive as a craftsman making sake.、Mm. So, it's not like a measuring, which is often the case in advanced modern production of any beverage. Yeah. Well, they do that. They do all types of、um, uh, measurement and、uh, technical analysis of the sake, but、mm. they also rely on their intuition and their experience as craftspeople、mm. to make the sake. So that, that was something I trained a lot in when I was there. Oh, wow. So you sense it and then confirm by numbers. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And、uh, I also heard that they, they try not to make a super exclusive sake, right? Right.、Um, one, of the, one of the key、uh, principles of Hakkai san is called wide supply, which means that if you make a great sake but only a few elite people can drink it,、mm. you know, that's not good for the overall industry. So、um, our goal is to make our most accessible sake, most widely available sake, the highest quality we can.、Mm. So our Honjozo, which is one of our entry level sakes, The rice milling rate goes all the way down to 55%,、oh, wow. which is very, very low. Normally it's 70%, but we、mm-hmm. go all the way down to 55%. And that extra step helps us to ensure that the sake is going to be as clean and crisp and delicious as it can be.、Mm, wow. <coughs> so, like, you know, it says that milling down, it could be 70% to 55% means a lot of money <laughs> investment.、Yes. But then maintain the cost, I mean, the price as much as they can. Exactly.、Yeah. It's, it's always a, a balance between the cost of the raw materials in the process and the end product.、Mm-hmm. But for us, creating、uh, an affordable Honjozo, it's not the cheapest on the market, but it's the best quality Honjozo that you can get because of that low milling rate.、Mm-hmm. So we re- we're really proud of that. Right. And、uh, I think、uh, by numbers, the number of breweries,、um, the license, I think, is around 1,600. But then I heard it's actually what's being produced. I mean, it's like it producing、um, breweries are all almost close to a thousand, only a thousand.、Mm. So I think the, the approach to make sake accessible is important. Otherwise, the drinking 
consumers are declining and they have to do something to make it approachable. Absolutely. And you want a good quality, affordable sake within everybody's reach. That's, mm -hmm. That will really help grow the market. So mm -hmm. that's the cornerstone of what Hakkai-san tries to do. Of course, we make, we make ultra-premium and super-premium sakes as well that don't have the same volume. But for an everyday, really delicious, easy-drinking sake that can pair with a wide variety of food, that's something we want to make accessible to as many people as possible. Right. Well, I have to uh, share this, my experience. I went to <coughs> Tim's uh, welcome back party last week, yep. and there is a sparkling sake that's well made in champagne style. Yes. And the bottle aged, the second fermentation in bottle. And also uh, three-year uh, aged Yukimuro. Yes. Mm. Maybe yeah. you could just quickly talk about this old sake. Oh, sure. So <laughs> the, um, the sake you had, the Yukimuro sake, that's a snow storage aged sake, aged for three years. It's a Junmai Ginjo grade, and the rice milling rate is 50%. Mm. When you age a sake, you really concentrate the flavors, and you get uh, a rich, full-bodied sake, but it also rounds the edges, so there's no sharpness to it. You get a lot of softness, and even though it has intensity and weight, it's, it's very, very easy drinking. And um, that concentration of the flavors gives you more intense umami. So mm. it, we pair that particular sake, the aged sake, we pair it with non-Japanese food, uh, pork tenderloin, for example, or mm. richer dishes. It really has the weight and the umami to stand up. So aging sake is a wonderful new frontier. Right. And uh, this is our, this is our uh, first attempt at aging sake. Right. And it was really impressive was, you know, aged sake, usually over three years, it's yellowish or brownish <coughs> yes. amber, but it was clean yes. because it was uh, Yukimuro, the snow, yep. snow room aged. Yeah. So snow is a natural resource of Niigata where I was doing my internship. And the um, Hakai-san built a Yukimuro, a snow storage cellar, and there's a thousand tons of snow, a big pile of snow in an insulated room. And the sake tanks are right next to the snow, the stainless steel tanks. And the mm. sake is aged using the cold from the snow alone. Mm. So there's no electricity used for air conditioning or chilling the tanks. The cold is kept at a constant temperature between three and five degrees Celsius mm. for those three years just by snow alone. And the, the room is refilled with snow once a year in the winter. Mm. So it doesn't get oxidized? Exactly. That low temperature keeps the color very, very clear. Mm. That's why. So I think, you know, kosha is very strong, um, unique, you know, the fragrance and I yes. some people get addicted I, me too yes. that was a very interesting idea of aged sake and clean and completely different right normally aged sake is like sherry as you as you mentioned it turns brown and mm -hmm. uh, turns golden and you get lots of really really constant super concentrated sugary notes mm. but we wanted to make something that was true to our DNA so it came out clean crisp and clear mm -hmm. but having much more weight than our standard sake, which is usually aged just for six months. Mm, right. And also the, you know, the sparkling sake, which I think it's, uh, indicates the Hakkai-san's modern mindset because it's nobody used uh, the sparkling sake in the champagne method like <coughs> Hakkai-san did, I think. Yeah, we, recent, we recently la launched a new sparkling sake. It's called awa, mm -hmm. which means foam or bubble in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And um, we wanted to make a very elegant style of sparkling sake. 
So we um, experimented with doing a secondary in-bottle fermentation mm. and then disgorging, as you would with the champagne method. Mm. And we've uh, come to a wonderful end product that you got to taste at the, at the mm -hmm. Welcome Home Party. And that product is not yet available in the States, but we hope to bring it into the market next year. Mm. So it's a very clear uh, and uh, very, very elegant style of sparkling sake. Right. Yeah, I was hoping uh, this is New Year's uh, celebration. I wanted to get it. So hopefully soon. <laughs> hopefully soon. <laughs> right. Okay. And uh, so uh, you mentioned Niigata is snowy, yes. right? I maybe we can talk about the crazy snowy <laughs> experience. Well, the town where Hakkai-san is located is called Minami Uonuma, and it's on record as having the second deepest snowfall in Japan. Mm. It, it snows, um, there, you can have six to nine feet of snow on the ground at one time. Wow. And it is one of the hallmarks of that region is the vast amounts of snow that you get. Mm. So everybody, the whole, whole lifestyle there is geared around surviving this winter. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, a lot of the food is uh, preserved and pickled, and that is uh, a history from having to survive the long winter mm. by preserving the food from the, from the summer. Right. Yeah. So I think the you know the roof tend to be sharper. Yes. Yes. The angle, because otherwise the house is going to be pressed down with exactly. Snow. You see a lot of houses with very funny angles to their roofs, and that's so the snow will fall off mm. automatically. And the <laughs> other thing that they have, which is uh, really interesting for non-Japanese people is a shosetsu pipe, mm. which is a pipe that's embedded into the road, and it, it's like a little sprinkler system. Oh. And they use running water to melt the snow in the roadway. Mm. So whenever the snow starts falling, the sprinklers go off on all the roads in the town, and it melts the snow as it's falling so mm. it doesn't pile up in the street. Nice. So this is a really unique to this heavy, heavy snow region. Mm. And that was so interesting to learn about. All the... All the techniques and technologies they developed to survive this crazy snow. Right. Probably it's better to spend money on that system than, you know, treating people with back pain all the time. Yes. <laughs> the healthcare <laughs> systems go bad. So, okay. And I think you told me about, uh, you know, you lost your car when you... Yes, I went <laughs> in the middle of... The snow was deepest in January and February, and I, I got invited out to dinner with some friends, and we parked in the parking lot, and we went in, and we had a two-hour dinner, and when we came back, the snow had fallen so much that the car was literally covered with snow. You could not see it. <laughs> but luckily, everybody... Uh, works together to survive the winter and everybody carries like a full-size shovel in their car. Wow. So we got the shovel out, we dug in and we got the shovel out and we scooped out the car and everyone was working together and you just kind of survived the situation mm. together. But it was really made a big impression on me when right. the car was gone <laughs> over two hours. Right. Wow. But it sounds like you can make good friends through snow. Absolutely. And then you go drink warm sake together. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, so the, because of uh, that climate, uh, also for many reasons, I think Niigata sake has a very special style, right? And I yes. often hear it's tanrei. Yeah, tanrei karakuchi, mm. which means clean, crisp, and dry. And um, it really, in my opinion, ties back to the water. When you have so much snow, that's a tremendous amount of water mm -hmm. trapped in the snow. And usually that melts, and the majority of breweries in Niigata get their water from snow melt mountain stream water. Mm. And it's true for Hakkai-san as well. Hi. That water has spent very little time underground. It's lightly filtered by, by mountain soil, mm. and you get it very soon after it melts. So it doesn't have a lot of time to pick up minerality. So mm -hmm. you get a very soft, low minerality type of water. 
and that informs the clean, dry, crisp, lighter taste of Niigata. Interesting. Ah, okay. And um, I think the when you age sake or ferment sake because of the temperature, um, probably the changes environment. Well, um, one other thing about the snow, briefly, is that the snow when it falls acts like an air filter. And it traps so much uh, dirt and dust that would otherwise be in the air at mm. the brewery. So the air in the winter is exceptionally clean and crisp as well. So mm. that's why snow regions are great for making sake. Right. And the other thing that a lot of snow on the ground is uh, like uh, cold insulation. So it ensures that the temperature will be low when you're doing fermentation at the brewery. Mm. And that Low and slow fermentation creates the cleanest sake. So ah. that's a wonderful aspect to the snow, snow country as well. Mm, so more delicate exactly. activity of a bacteria. Right, interesting. <coughs> right. I'm, I'm sorry, your lungs started to be contaminated in New York already. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's true. Right. Um, okay, and also I heard uh, the Niigata created uh, the sakamai called Gohyaku Mangoku in 1958. That's right, yeah. Right. So what is that special rice? Well, Gohyaku Mangoku is the kind of the native sake rice of Niigata Prefecture. It means 5 million koku. And a koku is a measurement of rice that's equal to about 300 pounds. Mm. So when Niigata Prefecture passed making 5 million koku for the first time, they named this sake rice in honor of that achievement. Ah. And um, it is a, a style of sake rice that makes... You guessed it, light and clean mm. style of sake. Um, it's, it's a wonderful uh, workhorse style um, sake rice. And it's the second most produced sake rice in Japan. Mm. Wow. So uh, <coughs> Yamada Nishiki is a really high end. And the Gohyaku Mangoku also, it's really different style of rice. Yeah. Mm. Yamada Nishiki can produce more fruity flavors and more floral aromas, but... Gohyaku Mangoku is known more for light and crisp style sakes. Mm. Okay, and I heard uh, after you know World War II, I think it's been people tend to you know because it was poor, people wanted to have rich, sweeter sake mm. to compensate for what's missing. Yes. And now I think the whole trend is people tend to like lighter, cleaner style of sake like Akai-san, yeah. the Niigata. Yeah. I really found that. Uh, dry, clean sakes can pair with a very wide variety of foods. If your sake is very fruity or floral, I think that limits a bit what you can pair with it. But uh, dry sake is like the frame to a painting. Mm. You know, it's a great backdrop for whatever the chef is making or whatever you're going to order. Mm. Um, that clean, balanced style goes with a wide variety of foods. And that's something I really love about Niigata sake. Mm, right. So if you have a party at home, <coughs> if you bring that style of sake, you are harder to fail. I think so. Right. Because it's like, you know, some wines could be too acidic or too tannic, mm. for instance. And the sake is really, uh, you know, very flexible. Yeah, and, totally. Uh, right. You allow you to fail. And you cannot fail even. So. <laughs> and okay, so um, so how did you find this a unique opportunity to work for a year at the Hakai-san Sake Brewery? Well, as I mentioned before, I had been working on and off with uh, Hakai-san, uh, doing presentations for them, lectures for them, and um, uh, when one time the president came to New York, and we were talking after one of our events together, and it was my suggestion to. Uh, if we're going to work together more, me as brand ambassador, maybe I should come and, and work at the brewery and, you know, get to know all the people. Mm. 
um, I have a firm belief that sake is not just liquid in a bottle. It's really the people and the culture that produce it. Mm. And I, I knew a few people at the brewery. I knew a lot of the salespeople, but uh, I didn't know a lot of the production staff or some of the domestic salespeople. So I really wanted to spend some time there. And of course, I love Japan. Mm. So um, it was still a big decision. And um, uh but I talked about it with the president, and he thought it was a good idea. So wow. we, we made it happen. <laughs> so you're not sure you tried it, and then it worked out. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. great. Well, that's really amazing, that president's mindset. Yeah. Let's try it. And uh, Hakai-san also helped me apply for a visa to, mm. to live in Japan. And uh, they applied for what's known as a cultural activities visa. Wow. And normally, that's used for people who go to Japan to study ikebana flower arranging mm. or... or uh, uh, you know, some type of martial arts or something like that. But uh, I found out after the fact that I was the first person ever mm. to be approved for cultural activities visa to study sake making. Wow. So um, I hope that's the first of many more to come. Right. So you created a history. Yes. Right. <laughs> so well, that's interesting, though. I think the Japanese government started to uh, emphasize on promoting food culture. Yes, Japanese it's very cuisine. important. Yeah. Right. It's just the World Heritage <clears throat> granted. So, yeah, so you are the milestone. <laughs> and uh, so, so, okay, so Hakai-san wanted you to have as um, even more um, knowledgeable ambassador. Yes. That's their purpose. Yes, exactly. Okay. And uh, so what was your goal at the brewery to achieve the goal? Well, I was uh, basically over one year, I worked literally in every area of the brewery. Mm. I started in the rice milling plant. Hakai-san has three different brewing facilities. I worked at each one, mm. and I did each job at the brewery, whether it was steaming rice or making the main mash or in the pressing room. Wow. I also worked in the bottling facility, and Hakai-san has a few retail shops as well in Niigata, and mm. I worked a retail internship, introducing <laughs> sake to customers in Japanese. So. From A to Z, I really did everything. But my primary work was being a brewery worker, mm. like working in the brewery, making the sake. That's the the majority of what I did. Mm. Right. And uh, well, <clears throat> you did work before, right? Like two months before. So yeah. so you, you were at different facility, like, you know, kind of difference between the last time and this time. Well, the, the last time was uh, super brief. That mm. was just uh, a very short mm -hmm. introduction. This was in-depth everywhere I mm, went. Right. So I got the, the broadest possible mm -hmm. exposure to making sake. And right. uh, that was really, really fantastic. Mm. And also I heard you, you are in charge of more, more expensive sake too. This time. Yes. Uh, Hakai-san has, as I mentioned, uh, three brewing facilities. One of them is the Kowagura, which is the elite mm. uh, ultra-premium sake brewery. They only open this facility for two months, just January and February every year. Mm. And it is, uh, they pick the top six brewers every year to work at that brewery. And uh, I was allowed to, this is, this is where they make the most expensive, most rare sake. And mm. I was allowed to kind of tag along and observe them and do all the tasks with them. But it was very nerve wracking because you're working on the most expensive sake and mm. you know, any mistake could be catastrophic. So uh, I had to be very, very careful and it's very nerve wracking and people have to work overnight shifts three times a week. Wow. So uh, everybody is a little sleep deprived and working so hard. Uh, but 
through all that stress and all that hard time, everyone was still so welcoming and mm. teaching me as we went along. So it, it was really, it was a tough, but it was a really amazing experience. Mm, wow. I mean, there's so many steps in sake making, but what is um, the most nerve-wracking? <laughs> well, the most nerve-wracking uh, for me personally was carrying the rice because okay. <laughs> you have to carry the rice from where it's steamed to where it's cooled and then from where it's cooled you have to carry it to the tank mm. and um, you know I just I worked so hard not to drop anything <laughs> I was so careful and they, you have to run and you have to go really really fast because uh-huh. you don't want the temperature of the rice to change right. so I had all these nightmares of myself like <laughs> tripping and the rice flying everywhere and luckily I didn't do that mm. I didn't uh, drop it knock on wood but uh, th- that was tough for me um, uh, the people who do all the analysis of the sake had big challenges to maintain the temperature of the mash. Mm. Um, uh, I would observe things like that, but uh, just just about everything. Mm. Yeah, not breaking everywhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. So the, the, the intense, <clears throat> you know, the most intense period of sake making that's that's in the snowy yes, period, right? Exactly. That ties in exactly with the deepest snowfall, mm. the January and February. Right. So when you sleep, um, you stay up all night, mm-hmm. what do you do? Is just the waiting? Well, there's, um, you have to check on the koji rice. That's the molded rice that converts starch into sugar. So mm-hmm. that's really one of the main overnight tasks is checking in on this, uh, the growth of the koji mold. Mm. And um, there would be periodic checks. And uh, the, the manager of the koji room would let you know what time to come back. So you could sleep on a chair for an hour or so and he'd say oh you know come back at three Mm. and everyone would like you know mix the koji rice and do your thing and then you'd get another 45 minute break or something like that so it was on and off all night long Mm. how did you find it it was tough it's (laughs) tough you're very sleepy the next day Mm. right and how many people do like you know in that specific uh, task how many people share that um, there's three people that stay overnight every night. So, like the group of people, you take turn, right? Yes. So, like group of six or something like well, that. Well, the the, um, the uh, Koagura has six brewers total, mm. uh, but there's three people that stay the overnight shift okay. every day. Right. Yeah. So half half the team is there overnight. Mm. So you have to eat well and rest well other than... Yes, you have to take very good care of your body, yeah. Mm. And luckily, I mean, the air is so clean. We talked about the great you know, the great nature that's there. And Mm -hmm. um, I didn't get a cold or get sick at all in one year. It was really, Mm. uh, I was really surprised. I'm curious, though, what was uh, the food that you you were eating? Hakkai-san has a wonderful company cafeteria. Mm. And everybody can eat lunch together. And they make a lot of home-cooked home-cooked meals, um, like ramen or tonkatsu or... Uh, different types of uh, uh, grilled fish. Mm, and which is famous in Niigata. Yeah, so we got a teishoku every day for lunch. Mm-hmm. Teishoku uh, is a set lunch. Set lunch, yeah, mm. with the uh, uh, koshi kari rice, the famous Niigata eating rice. Mm-hmm. And we would have miso soup and uh, pickles and then whatever the main dish was. Mm. And this was our lunch every day. Very healthy. Mm. It kept everybody going. Right, that's the traditional ichiju sansai. Yeah. One rice, one soup, and then three other things. Yep. Wow. That sounds very healthy. It was right. great. I mm. loved it. Right. So, and any other crazy experience technically, like at the brewery, like which you didn't know even even to you? Well, the very first internship I did was at the rice milling plant. Mm. And this was my very first days at the brewery, mm. right when I got there. That was the first thing they had me do. 
and I was very nervous. And I remember the manager of the um, the rice milling plant took some rice out of the batch that had just been milled, and he put some in a little tray on the shelf, and he took some in a little tray, and he put it in the refrigerator. And then after a couple hours, he brought them both out, and the ones that had um, rested at room temperature were fine. The ones that had rested in the refrigerator had all cracked. Mm. All the rice had cracked. Wow. And I, I was astounded. I'd never seen that before. And he says, what we do with the rice after milling is just as important as how we mill it. Mm. If you let the rice chill too quickly, like if we put it outside uh-huh. in the cold, the rice grains would all crack because they're very fragile after milling. Mm. So that, that made a big impression on me because it was my first big lesson mm. after arriving, just after a couple days. Right. So I knew it was going to be a great year. So mm. I always remember that experience. Right. And you never know unless you were there and exactly. just see it by yourself. Right. Interesting. Okay. And uh, so did you have any, you know, culture shock, like in the brewery? Because, you know, I'm sure you're the only American person, non-Japanese <laughs> person, right? So communicating. And yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say I had too much culture shock because I had visited Japan many times before. Mm. So I knew about Japanese culture. Right. Um, but living in Japan was a little bit different. One of my favorite things that happened was that... Oh, Uh, every once in a while, I would have an office day where I would work in the office. And the, uh, some of the ladies that worked in the office with me, whenever I was there, they would come over to my desk with some crazy Japanese snacks, <laughs> <laughs> like smoked squid crackers or something like that. Mm. And they would see, they would test me to see if I could eat these crazy Japanese flavors. And we had so much fun with that. So every time I would come by, they would have like, Pickled plum gummies or something, <laughs> and I had. They were always challenging me with these funny snacks, and uh, that that was a little bit of culture shock for me, for sure. But it ended up being a lot of fun, and they loved it when I couldn't eat something or I didn't like something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were at the supermarket like, "What shall we get yeah, for dinner?" Exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's cute. That's super yeah. cute. And in the Japanese office culture, they tend to have a lot of sweets to share. And Absolutely. There's a big culture of, of sharing. And if you travel, you bring a, a omiyage, a little gift of food from wherever you came from. So there's always some snack lying around and people are sharing. But they love to test me with the crazy, mm. crazy fish cake flavors and things like that. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was, Even it was for you. Fun. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. And then... Uh, Uh, you also got involved in cultural activities? I did a lot of cultural activities. Um, I was there on a cultural activities visa, so mm-hmm. I really wanted to do as much as I could. So I asked them to tell me about every festival and every local community event that was happening. So I did a, a wide variety of things over the one year. Mm-hmm. For instance? Well,、um, one of the very first things I did was the、uh, Hakai San Jinja Hiwatari Festival.、Uh, that was the.、Uh, The、uh, Shinto shrine to Hakai San Mountain,、mm. and they have a fire walking festival、okay. where、um, they burn a big bonfire, and then everyone in the community walks over the coals <laughs> for one year of health. And I said to myself when I got there, I saw the flames shooting up 50 feet in the air. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not doing this. There is no way. <laughs> But everybody got in line, even、uh, little old ladies and children, and everyone was walking over these coals. And I'm like, okay, I gotta do it. You know,、mm. I, can't, I can't chicken out. So I did it, and it was warm, but they, I learned they sprinkle salt on the coals to、ah. kind of mask the heat a little bit. Right, because、so, salt absorbs the temperature. Exactly.、Ah. So it was not, not that bad at all. And 
as I mentioned before, I had a whole year of health, ah, so it really worked. Right. Maybe you should go back every year yeah. and do it. <laughs> that was an amazing cultural experience. And I also, um, another thing that made a big impression on me was I was invited to go um, foraging for wild uh, mountain vegetables. Mm. So I climbed two hours up a mountain wow. and we were picking wild mountain vegetables. I had a 70-year-old guide mm. and the two of us were up in the mountain and we picked uh, ton of, of these uh, mountain vegetables. Wow, amazing. And that that was a great experience to be out in nature. I could From my house, I could see the mountains mm. every Is it Hakkaisan Mountain? No, it was not Hakkaisan <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. But there's a lot of mountains in that region. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being up in the mountain and picking the wild mountain vegetables right. and getting to eat them was just amazing. Mm. So, and it's highly seasonal, too. Exactly. From one week to the next, it can change. Mm. Yeah, we call it the Sansai Gari, right? Yep. So it's like, um, you know, when I was little, I used to go with my mom. That was really fun. Right? And then to cook it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's nice. Um, okay, so um, let's take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we'll talk about Tim's plans for the future. So please stay with us. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm your host, Akiko Kotayama, and my guest today is Tim Sullivan, who is the brand ambassador of Hakkaisan Sake Brewery. And Tim just came back to New York from a year-long apprenticeship at Hakkaisan Brewery. So how do you think uh, it's a new knowledge and experience will change your responsibility as a sake expert from now? Well... I definitely came back with a renewed desire to continue my teaching career. Mm. I did sake education in the past, and I visited many breweries and toured many breweries in the past. Uh, But it's a different experience working Mm. there for a year Mm. and actually carrying the rice yourself, steaming the rice yourself, stirring the tank yourself Mm. instead of watching it. So I really felt the experience in my body. And uh, all my sore muscles and (laughs) (laughs) freezing cold and, you know, the koji room's hot and you're sweating and all this very, very physical experience of making sake. Mm. Having that experience really changed my outlook on sake, gave me even more passion Mm. to share it with the world and uh, gave me a great amount of confidence to talk about sake and Mm. um, uh, try to spread the word as, as far and wide as I can. Mm. So I just got much more energized to teach about sake. That's wonderful. Because I I have nothing compared to you, but I worked at the winery a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
And before and after, I feel like, oh, I didn't know anything yes. about wine. So, yeah. And I felt that when I, when I discovered sake 10 years ago, I felt like this is a hobby or this is work that you can literally study forever mm-hmm. and you'll never reach, you'll never become a true master. Mm. Even the toji, the master brewer, they always say they're still learning and there's so much to do. And this, this pursuit of perfection is something that's very Japanese, mm. never true mastery, but always striving to do better. Mm. And I feel that's true. Even after one year, there's so much more for me to learn. Mm. Very, very humbling. Right. So what's your plan to educate as an ambassador, of course? Yep. So I'm going to travel quite a bit with Hakai-san and introduce their products. Um, but the president of Hakai-san is also interested in me doing general sake education because when more people know about sake in general, mm. um, the market's going to grow. Right. So I, of course I introduce Hakai-san and I introduce my specific experience, but I also want to educate people about sake in general. Mm. Yeah, so I attended your sake classes and it's really you know, it stays in my head, you know, like key Great. points. So are you going to do, so you used to teach at Astro Center, for instance. Yes, exactly. Are you going to do things like that again? Absolutely. I'm going to try and seek out as many uh, sake education opportunities as I can. Mm. And one thing I really want to concentrate on the future is uh, any chance to pair sake and non-Japanese food. Mm. So branching out from just working at Japanese restaurants into non-Japanese restaurants right. and finding ways to marry sake and Western food as well mm. that's really the forefront and that's that's the uh, where, where every, everything's headed I think right I think that's the future because I think sommeliers are more interested in having just beyond wine and uh, sake is really I think intellectually um, kind of inspiring too for really good sommeliers too yeah and I think some sommeliers that are young and curious and you know uh, interested in the world I think that when you say oh have you ever thought about sake uh, it's it's a new taste. It's something new and interesting for them to explore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been to some restaurants where I've, I've as, a, as a guest, and I said, oh, you know, I, I teach about sake. And their response is, oh, we don't have that here. And they, like, <laughs> walk away. <laughs> so some people are not interested. But um, I, I, there's there's a group of sommeliers uh, that are, are interested, and mm. it's a wonderful new frontier. You can have so many interesting, wonderful pairings. Mm. So um, I'm really excited about it. Right. And eventually, over time, those restaurants were not interested now in sake. Maybe, oh, they're doing, and people like it, so let's try that. Yeah. So that's hopefully the direction. And as also last time in episode 32, we talked about cheese and the sake pairings yes. and how successful they are. Yeah. Right. So hopefully, um, yeah, you can do, I don't know, you can do seminars to sommeliers or I don't know. some. I'd love to. I think one, one, one thing you can do is uh, uh, different uh, trade organizations and different, um, you know, if there's a sommelier um, association, mm-hmm. uh, it would be great to connect with a group like that. Right. And uh, uh, anyone who's interested can come and learn about sake. Mm. I did a, I did a um, lecture recently for a bartending association. Mm. So uh, bartenders who are interested in learning about sake. So that type of work is, is uh, definitely something I want to do a lot more of in mm. the future. Interesting. Right. Because bartenders, they're looking for interesting ingredients. Yes. Which is it's probably easier to get into yeah. than... Sommeliers. And also sake, you know, um, the sake is now part of a wine com- competitions exactly. in many places. Yeah. Lots of bars pour wine by the glass at their bars and they need to know about the wines. And 
more and more premium sake is coming up on the buy the glass menu as well.、Mm. So they need to know about the sake as well. So. Right. Okay, so well, keep me posted. And if you have any interest in classes, Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to go and I'm going to announce on my Thank you so much. show. All right, so,、um, you know, the, what is the trend of the sake market in Japan in terms of、uh, the producers? Because I think you promote here, the sake market is growing in the US, but what is happening in Japan?、Yeah. At a very high level, the overall trend. Is for、uh, there's a contraction of the table sake market.、Mm. So the least,、uh, the, the, the most uh, uh, inexpensive sake,、um, that market is contracting. Like factory made. Exactly.、Mm. Less and less people are buying the cheapest、uh, sake.、Mm. But where the market is growing is the super premium.、Mm. So there's more and more super premium sakes coming out. More and more breweries are making. Uh, more and more premium, very expensive sakes. And、mm. this market is really growing.、Mm. And there's a great interest from wine lovers for these very, very premium sakes.、Right. So you can think of it that way that the premium categories are, are expanding and the table sake, mo- most inexpensive、mm. type of sake, that's where the real contraction is happening.、Right. Well, that's great because I think if it's、uh, the premium, <coughs> you know, those、uh, declining sake breweries get more, you know, they put more labor. An investment, but the reward is probably a little higher、yeah. than otherwise. Yeah, and the quality is so much、mm. higher as well.、Um, it's not an understatement to say this is the best time to drink sake ever.、Mm. You know, the, this is the time of the, the highest quality sake. And this premium, these premium categories have really only been around for 50 or 60 years. So,、mm. in the long thousand year history of sake, this is a new development.、Right. And I'm so happy to see that more and more breweries are. Getting on board making very premium sakes.、Mm. And I think also、uh, sake breweries are more proud of what they do. Yes. Which I think is a big motivation. Absolutely.、Right? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I think、uh, there's a data in 2016. So, US,、um, is the import of sake in US is solidly in- increasing, like、yes. 10%, 8 10% by value. From 2015, that means we are drinking more. Yes. Good, more good sake, better quality sake, too. Yeah, I contributed a little bit to that. <laughs> yeah, I think so, for sure.、Um, okay, so、uh, and I, I started to see more artisanal sake producers in the US. Yes. And,、uh, you know, like Ben Bell of、yep. Number Vision, for instance, we mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, are、absolutely. you planning to start your own sake brewery? Well, one thing I learned working at a brewery is that I'm not a gifted brewer. <laughs> I, I was there as, a,、um, you know, as an educator wanting to learn about it. I, I did all the steps of sake making, but I found out I'm not gifted at that. My passion is really education,、mm. and、um, I'm not going to be working、um, at a brewery, but I really want to teach about sake.、Mm. So that's really my goal. And I did, I did the work in the brewery to. I、become a better teacher and educate myself at a very deep level、mm. about how sake is made. Right. A real practical education.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think、uh, we need、uh, good educators, like maintaining. Also, I think people getting more curious technically, too. Yes. Right. So,、um, yeah, so what would you suggest as an educator to our listeners who are interested in, in sake business? Mm. Well, the first thing you have to do is drink a lot of sake. That's, <laughs> that's easy. That's an easy, easy step. But I always, I always have a caveat in there.、Mm. Um, you have to drink a lot of sake, and I always encourage people who are interested in sake. 
to take notes about what they're drinking. Mm. Just write down a few notes. And before you'll know it, you'll have a whole notebook full of notes and your palate will um, grow and expand. Mm. And when people start drinking sake, one of the first things I always hear is that it all tastes the same. Mm. And it's really quite different, but you do have to pay attention while you're drinking. And I find that writing a quick note to yourself about the taste mm. is a great way to... Um, begin to study sake. It doesn't have to be serious. It doesn't have to be, mm. you know, shoe leather and tobacco flavors or anything like that. <laughs> it can be very, very simple. Mm. <clears throat> like this tastes fruity or, you know, I smell bubble gum or, or I smell toasted rice. Mm. And uh, keeping simple notes is a great first step to learning about sake and taking steps towards being a professional. Mm. Okay. So listeners... Get your notebook and then start drinking. <laughs> and start <sake>. drinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so thank you for joining us again today, Tim. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. So hopefully you can come back for another surprising update. <laughs> I'd love to. Okay. So listeners, if you'd like to know more about Tim, uh, go to urbansake.com. That's urbansake, one word, dot com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays, always available at heritageradionetwork.org and iTunes and Stitcher as a podcast. So please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe and write a review. Really appreciate your feedback. And um, our engineer today is a bit of harsh. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.